Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Okay. Ready? You guys want to do the podcast? I'm so excited all I do. to be with you. <laughs> That's all I do. I'm excited to be with you too, Scott. Kind of. I never know if you guys are like kidding. <laughs> All right. Boys San Diego podcast, January 20th, 2022. Three, two. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. And I'm joined, as always, by managing editor Andrew Keats. Scott, how are you, pal? I'm good. I feel good. And managing editor, also managing editor, Andrea Lopez Villafana. Hello. Hello. How are you, Lopez? Doing good. Happy to be here. Me too. We are in the studio again. We're back. It's been a rough month. 2020. Two, what is it? (laughs) What year? That's the appropriate year. In fact, that's how I'm going to sign my checks from for the rest. 2020 dot 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 two question mark will be how I sign my checks this year. Coming up on the show this week, some major news in law enforcement is the region's top cop, Sheriff Bill Gore, announced he's retiring early. What a shock. Never seen that before. So what happens now and what does it mean for the race to replace him? We'll break it down. And last week, Andrea and I talked about the comments from San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria during his State of the City speech about how he wants to force more mentally ill San Diegans into conservatorships. This week, we got more reporting done on that topic and we can explain it a little bit more deeply. And finally, the trash strike is over. Sanitation workers are back on the job, and soon places like Chula Vista and other parts of San Diego will see those piles of garbage cleaned up. The workers and the company faced immense pressures, and our Jesse Marks wrote about it in his column about the pressures that everyday San Diegans face. And Marks is going to join us to explain. That's all coming up. Stay with us. 
my confusion about what year it is struck again. Yeah. So yesterday, the news came out that Sheriff Bill Gore was resigning, retiring. And I'm like, well, we knew that because somebody was going to run for sheriff and and that it would be effective February 2022. And in my mind, it didn't click that that was this year. It was like a few weeks. I thought it was just like, oh, well, yeah, that's the year that he'll be done. Why are we even getting this news? Duh. Slow news day. Yeah. (laughs) Come on, man. You already made this clear. What do you want more? Like. It's like when they launch campaigns like more than once, you yes. know, yeah. they're like, well, this is the real launch. Yeah. But turns out that's this year. That's in the next couple weeks. And Sheriff Bill Gore is going. Now, the obvious interpretation of why he would do that is why his predecessor did it. And why the current district attorney's predecessor did the same thing. Yeah. Vacating her job. Yeah. Bill Collender so, left his job. It's a playbook for this at the county, for these countywide seats. Yeah. Bill Collender, longtime sheriff, San Diego, left his job before the election, allowing Bill Gore to be appointed to the sheriff's seat, you know, temporarily, yeah. and then run for the office as the sheriff. And it says underneath his name on the ballot, sheriff. Yeah. Which it's is powerful. Awfully, awfully valuable. Same thing happened with Bonnie Dunamanis. She left. She said, I'm going to resign. I'm going to resign early. She maneuvered it so that her top deputy, Summer Stefan, could be appointed to see. And then Summer Stefan got to run as quasi-incumbent. Right. So is that what's happening? No. By all accounts, uh, it's it, it's a little curious why this has to happen right now. If that's not going to happen? Yeah, he didn't say, I'm sick, yeah. I want to go to Greece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People I mean, it's, go to it's, Greece <laughs> when they retire? I don't know. It seems like I would do that. It's lovely like, area. Hey, yeah, he's lovely. got a giant pension. Now he can go to a lot of places. <laughs> right. But no, he's not. He, and so Nathan Fletcher, the chairman of the board, has said that we will not appoint anyone who is running for the office. Well, he said he... Okay, would right, not right. support doing that. He said, quote, the previous board of supervisors had a habit of appointing their chosen candidate for countywide offices very close to an election. I didn't think it was right for them and it would not be right for us. So, Andrea, we have two candidates we know who are running. There's three, actually. We, we had them at PolitiFest. Uh, Kelly Martinez, his top deputy, the undersheriff, she's running. And then Dave Myers is running for that seat as well. He was mm-hmm. a former sheriff for a long time. And he ran in 2018 for the same position. And then San Diego City Attorney, the head of the criminal division in the misdemeanors office of the San Diego City Attorney, John Hemmerling, right. former Marine. He's running as well. And all three of the Democrats on the County Board of Supervisors, the people who have appointed Nathan Fletcher as the chair, have all endorsed Kelly Martinez. Mm-hmm. So and it, they did that the moment she announced that she was running, and the moment that Bill Gore announced he wasn't. Yes. At a time when not a lot of people knew who Kelly Martinez was. And so it was natural early on to, to wonder whether this was the, whether the path they were going to go down was the path that they had gone down before with both Gore and Demonis. Yeah. So here we have Nathan Fletcher saying even though he supports Kelly Martinez, he's not going or he doesn't want to put her right into that seat. But that does not necessarily eliminate the possibility that his colleagues, two Republicans and the two Democrats on the County Board of Supervisors could de- decide when this decision is made that they do want Martinez. Right, because they've already said that they're supporting her. Right. But Kelly Martinez issued a statement saying, 
I will not pursue the appointment. And then there were, this was a, a statement she put out. Um, I saw Andrew Bowen was tweeting about it and a lot of people responded to him. Sure, sure, sure. But will she reject the appointment if it was given to her? Is she trying to weasel word this by saying, I, I don't want that, but if the, but it does, does that leave some sort of room for her to be appointed and to accept it after the fact? And you she, have to apply, right? And she, well, I, yeah, you, yes, you do have to apply. At least that's my memory on the district attorney situation right. a few years ago. Um, but she clarified, look, like, make no mistake, I'm, I'm not doing this. So, look, uh, things change, but people are going to have to get awfully creative about how to make this one go if they're trying to make it happen after all the doors they've they've closed in the last day, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I guess I have a question for you guys since <laughs> I don't remember this last time it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the point that uh, Nathan Fletcher is trying to make, isn't that something that people were arguing back then when Gore was appointed? Yeah, I mean, Gore? it was like this kind of dog and pony show, right? It was just yeah. like, it was just this, they just were very clearly pulling something off. Yeah. And no matter how much you shouted about it, they'd be like, well, yeah, but nobody cares. Right. Keep shouting, nerd. Like, you know, like. <laughs> well, it's like the 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 least amount of political science you need to know to understand local races is that absolutely nothing that happens in a campaign is more important than what is on the ballot. Nothing. Yeah. No amount of money spent, no amount of endorsements you collect, no amount of campaign narrative that plays out in the press or in uh, debates is ever going to reach the wide swath of people that will be presented with the job title of the person on the ballot. That's why I remember when Kevin Faulkner ran for governor mm-hmm. and there was a big fight because he wanted to be known as former mayor of San Diego, but you can't be a former anything on the ballot, which is stupid. Like Wait, yeah, we, That's the best way to identify him is mm-hmm. to say he's the former mayor. But instead he had to go by what, businessman? Yes, businessman, he's which literally as we reported, done nothing he's in like, business. No, he's got, he's got a uh, LLC that has like two clients. <laughs> Um, and, and so in all these elections, there's like these lawsuits and people try to drum up coverage that, you know, campaign consultants try to drum up coverage for their fights about why their opponent's ballot title is grossly inaccurate and their, their, uh, ballot title is grossly unfair and, and blah, blah, blah. It happens every, every cycle, but like there was no mystery with Bill Gore or with Bonnie Demonis that when they or uh, Summer Stefan, that when they were appointed into this interim position that for the same job that they were running for, that it was immensely valuable, more valuable than anything else that was going to happen in an entire campaign. And so it you know raises a reasonable question about how fair that campaign that follows it is. Yeah, and I think it's probably, I think it's almost 80% that that's still what Bill Gore is trying to do. Or facilitate. Well, just without any other information, I don't understand yeah, what exactly. he is trying Why to do. Why do you need to leave a, a year early? Now, a couple of other developments we haven't talked about in that race. So this is probably the marquee race of the county in 2022, I would say. Uh, there's Chula Vista mayors, a couple other things that are pretty interesting. But uh, one interesting moment. So all those Democrats endorsed Kelly Martinez when she came out because they were trying to block Dave Myers from this. He's seen as more of an activist uh reformist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, criminal justice advocate. And so he, but he did get 
overwhelmingly the support of the Democratic Party. And so I remember the Democratic Party was all kind of miffed with us because when we said like Dems try to, you know, block out Dave Myers and support and support Kelly Martinez. Yes, there were several prominent Democrats who did that, but the actual party now has has rallied behind Myers. And if nothing else, that's revealing of we'll, we'll see how that plays out in its significance in this race. But we don't actually have to see how anything plays out to say that that reveals some significant split between where the party is and the activists that make up its central committee that vote on endorsements and the elected lead, the, the elected members of the party in the San Diego Democratic Party. Who, who are also very uh, unfiltered about their disdain for Myers. I mean, or at least a few of them. Yeah, yeah like uh, Juan Vargas called him unhinged, a congressman. Like, yeah. But but kind of didn't tough. specify any details about no. like what he didn't like about Dave Myers, right? So, um, but but I thought one thing I thought was when in Kelly Martinez's comments in the statement she made, you, we've got you've got him there right here. The people of San Diego deserve a fair race for sheriff as well as an appointed appointment process they can trust. I mean, I just don't see any sort of impl- uh, way you can read that except to say that the district attorney for this county. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was not elected with the, through a fair process, and and she was appointed through a process that the people of San Diego cannot trust. That's Damn. one way to read that. <laughs> I, I, I don't see any alternative way to read it. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, our Jesse Marks launched a new column called Fine City. And it's about the struggles and the stories of people who are trying to make it work here in San Diego. I'm already a fan. What do you think, Andrea? Pretty good, right? I'm a big fan. Great yeah. name. So this week, Marks has written uh, about the uh, sanitation workers strike in uh, mostly South Bay. Obviously, Republic Services served most of the county, though, in different ways. And uh, the sanitation workers who were on strike faced a tremendous amount of pressure, as his column explains, a very interesting insight to what they were dealing with and why the strike was ultimately resolved. Jesse joins us. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Scott. What's going on? Much just here. Uh, Sharon Aerosols in the studio. Let's, let's start here. What, your column is about the immense pressure the workers face. Uh, what pressures did they face as as this strike went on? Obviously, people are getting mad about their trash everywhere. The uh, the, the city councils and mayors are issuing stern statements. <laughs> what uh, what was going on in their mind? Well, I think the pressure came from a lot of different directions, but there was plenty of support that the workers got from the city of Chula Vista. Everything I heard, at least in the public record to date, was actually fairly sympathetic to the workers in their position. And even uh, people who are getting up and commenting on these things are basically saying, look, this isn't the fault of the workers that they're on strike. They're demanding better wages and they have a right to do it. But I think the pressure was primarily coming from a couple of different angles. It was it was partly external, but it was partly internal as well. And that's because strikes are really hard work. I, you, you, The union members have to stay off the job to hold themselves to a collective cause. But as I started discovering when I went to the picket line over the last week or so was that some of the guys had crossed that line 
And then on top of that, the company had started bringing in outside workers to clean up trash in the streets in response to all the complaints that had been generated. So they were literally being replaced, if only temporarily. But then more importantly, my column focuses on the fact that there was an unofficial deadline that was looming over the heads of a lot of the union members. And it was based on some of the uh, based on one of the terms in their previous contract. So if they waited too long, they were at risk of losing their health care. And that's because they're contractually obligated to work 80 hours a month, which meant even though they went out on strike on December 17th, health care and health insurance was secured for the month of January, but it wasn't secured for the month of February unless they got on the job. So if you need to work 80 hours, that's roughly two weeks, which meant that this past Monday was a kind of unofficial deadline that was looming over their heads to get a deal done or to go back on the job. Yeah. So they'd almost, they, they had negotiated their own strike deadline in a way in the previous contract. They did. And I don't uh, I don't have any sense that they were uh, fully cognizant of that at the beginning. But I can tell you that these guys didn't think the strike would actually last that long. There was a previous strike initiated by a different group of Teamsters up in Orange County uh, late last year. And so they took their cue and they took their inspiration from that strike because that one only lasted eight days and it was resolved fairly quickly. So the guys I spoke with were basically telling me we thought this would last only a couple of days. And then when it bled into the course of an entire month, I think this panic started to set in. And I was going to these rallies that the union was holding with its own membership. And they were openly talking about, hey, you guys, we know that there's some talk of people wanting to cross the picket line. Just please don't do it. So there was a certain desperation that kind of crept in at the last minute. And I think that's what pushed them over the edge to sign a deal that they weren't totally in favor of, but the alternative was so much worse. So so in the end, compare the the deal they got with the deal in Orange County that that they sort of were hoping to get and whose uh you know sort of the path they were following in 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 striking in the first place. So these guys have a base rate of $24.60 an hour. And so what they wanted was a $6 increase over the course of the next five years, which is my understanding. That's what the guys up in Orange County got. And instead, the company came back and said, we'll give you a $4.90 increase over the next five years. And even though that's a 20% increase over their hourly base play, base pay, it still wasn't good enough for them because a region like San Diego is so expensive. So a lot of these guys were telling me, if you do the math, $24.60 an hour comes out roughly to about $50,000 a year. Some of them are able to make upwards of $75,000, but that requires you to put in 60 hours a week, which means typically six days a week. And that's a pretty grueling schedule for a lot of these guys. And they've also pointed out how dangerous their, their jobs can actually be. But more importantly, and completely understandably, they'd like weekends off to be with their families. Yeah. And so so with the um the the like the soft deadline or I guess it honestly turned into a bit of a hard deadline with the um the need to to lock up healthcare, how much did uh whatever leverage the city of Chula Vista and the city of San Diego through uh, the Mayor Todd Gloria's statements late last week, how much did did those actions end up mattering in terms of uh putting leverage on the negotiations or, or really in the end, was it, was it all about this, this deadline for healthcare? My impression of it was that the company was largely unfazed by the threats that were coming out of the city of Chula Vista and the city of San Diego. Uh, and just, so just so people understand, 
The Teamsters Local 542 has a collective bargaining agreement that expands across a couple of different cities. So even though Chula Vista was the heart of the labor dispute, it affected and disrupted routes in the unincorporated part of the county as well as in the city of San Diego. And I think um, initially there, the response from the workers in the face of these um, comments from the mayor's office, from the kind of public grilling that the Chula Vista City Council gave to the management of Republic Services, that was greeted with a lot of uh, enthusiasm and excitement. But it was also quite telling that immediately afterwards, the company didn't return to the negotiating table. And so from the perspective of the workers, they just assumed that this company, because it's so big, because its profits in 2020 were uh, more than a billion dollars, that they could afford to just wait this out as long as possible. Because in the back of their minds, they knew that there was an unofficial deadline approaching and that many of these guys needed to keep their health insurance. And so there was an incentive for them eventually to cave. Jesse, why do you think this played out differently than what happened in Orange County? I mean, you wrote about it last week. You mentioned some issues with the contract and the city of Chula Vista. I think it's in large part because the strike up in Orange County had more official support or at least official support more quickly. The city of Huntington Beach declared a public emergency within a couple of days. Chula Vista waited an entire month to do that and in the process just wound up buying time indirectly for the company to just wait these guys out. So I think as well-meaning as the responses were from the city of Chula Vista in San Diego, I think it was too little too late by then. That's a really interesting point because I think when I look at all the statements that were put out and all the, the again, stern, you know, written statements, they were always very kind of ambiguous. Like, you need to pick up trash. People need to get back to work. You know, there, there need, it was never like, it, it, it you know, I, and obviously they clearly didn't want to necessarily take a side, but even ostensibly pro-labor politicians like, like Todd Gloria didn't really want to be seen as, as on one side of it. And I think it, it, that might fit with what you're talking about, that the Republic sensed that there's, there was some more patience here for the company to wait it out. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and the other thing that, that, hampered the ability of the city to act more quickly. I mean, to begin with, they waited a few weeks before even doing anything because the strike happened right before the holidays. They could have called an emergency meeting, but they didn't. And I think they also probably assumed in their minds that this would be resolved in a few days. But when they finally sat down to talk about it and think about what their options would be, they realized that in their previous franchise agreement with Republic Services, they had excused the company from fault if there was a strike or a work stoppage. And I talked to the city attorney about this and he told me that some franchise agreements with sanitation companies include that language, others don't. But what it did to Chula Vista was it meant that they couldn't come in and basically say, look, Republic Services, you're at fault for this. You need to get a deal done. Instead, they had to find other language and other potential legal leverage within their contract that they could execute. So instead, they started looking at, OK, well, can we find Republic Services for just not doing its job? And its job is to just pick up trash regardless of whether or not there's a strike. So it became a more complicated legal question in Chula Vista than it did in, say, Huntington Beach. So they they had that initial four ninety improvement to their four dollars and ninety cents improvement to their wages over time, and then they 
kept holding out, but they didn't get much after that. They basically got a, a, a little bit of a bonus to come back to work. And what else? They also got a 10 cent per hour increase to their pension contributions, which for some of the older guys was actually great. One guy who I spoke with who's nearing retirement thought that that was fantastic, but overall sort of disappointed in the rest of the package. It did also include increased allowances for uh, certain pieces of equipment like boots and tools. The company provides a certain amount of money so those guys can buy the stuff that they need to literally go out on the job. Yeah. I think one of the interesting parts about your story is just how it fits in this larger context, what's happening around the country, which is this uh, workers frankly, just appear to feel like they have a lot more leverage right now. And they're pushing for better arrangements, better contracts. There's more strikes. There's more all kinds of these these initiatives across the country. Just better job quality. Yeah. You know. and, and, and I think in your piece, though, it seems like there was, there was a, a reckoning in the piece of, of people saying, we're just not good at this, though, right now, right? <laughs> like, as far as they might be a little out of practice on holding the line on a strike. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that, well, look, union membership has been declining for decades in the United States. And so we're certainly seeing a kind of resurgence in organizing and demonstrations. And then I think on top of that, the pandemic has revealed um, to people who don't work these types of jobs, just how difficult they really are and how essential they are to keeping the entire system afloat. I think the union did everything it possibly could to hold everyone together for as long as possible. But I think all of these factors and all these pressures just built up. And the last couple of meetings that I went to seemed pretty anxious and, um, the guys just folded at the end of it. And so Republic services got what they wanted just by waiting them out. Well, you can follow Jesse's work with his new newsletter, Fine City. It's the column comes out every other week. You can subscribe at vosd.org slash newsletters. Jesse, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Scott. I like that dude. Jesse? Yeah, he's That's good. Cool. Mm-hmm. He's okay. He's still on the that phone. Okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hi, Jesse. Hi, <laughs> Jesse. So, Lopez, last week you and I talked about these kind of startling comments from Mayor Todd Gloria in his State of the City speech about conservatorships. I just didn't expect him to say that one of the solutions he was going to employ was to put people in charge of other individuals' lives and, in many cases, remove their freedom to be on the streets. And uh, and I think he brought up something that a lot of us thought when we heard it, which is the Britney Spears, <laughs> Britney Spears. situation. <laughs> this, the queen this, of pop? I, I think it's fair to say millions of people learned what a conservatorship was from that news story. Now, I'm going to ask you that, put you on the spot, Andrea. Do you understand the difference between what she faced and what uh, the plans and ideas are from Mayor Todd Gloria? So we, our own Lisa Halberstadt did some reporting this week and and kind of got into that. Yeah. So I think I do. But okay. let's just explain what a conservatorship is in the first place. It's a legal arrangement usually done through court, through a judge that appoints a representative for someone who, you know, has some kind of mental illness, dementia. They can't take care of themselves. So basically they appoint this representative to handle this person's medical care, finances, and sometimes just like basic 
life things, like who they choose to marry, um, you know, just basic stuff. So that's essentially a conservatorship. But in California, there's two types of conservatorships. There's a probate, so think Britney Spears. Um, but then there's one called a Lanterman Petrus Short, basically LPS, and that's reserved for people who are gravely disabled. Think someone who can't feed themselves, can't find shelter, and can't clothe themselves. Um, and that's what Gloria is talking about, not the kind that we know about because of Britney Spears. Yeah, so uh, Britney Spears, is, is her whole affairs are being taken care of, but she can still like go yeah, she can. out or something. But this is, this is a situation where somebody can't function and and thus uh, an individual is is put in charge of their actual functioning, their health and everything. Right. Yeah. And so the it's uh, as Lisa reported for us this week. It's that legal standard gravely disabled that sets a really high threshold for when a city could intervene to take somebody off the street and put them into this conservatorship process and eventually have a judge put a conservator over them. Um, and so like one of the advocates she spoke to referred to a specific situation in which um, a, a woman was trying to get her son off the street and she found him and saw him eating food out of the garbage can. Um, and that was specifically cited as a reason that he couldn't be put into the conservatorship process because his eating food out of the garbage can was evidence that he could feed himself. And so that he was not gravely disabled because he wasn't going to starve if he was eating food out of a trash can. Oh. Um, and they want to change that. They want to change yeah. that. They want to lower the threshold from gravely disabled so that more people who are severely mentally distressed and can't take care of themselves but may not meet this really high bar of literally being in, in, in danger of dying any second – Based on based on how how disabled they are, uh, lower that to a point that that would that would capture more of the people who are living on the street. And I I thought that example was interesting because I mean I would think that his mom would argue that that is evidence that is that evidence he, that, that somebody he needs, needs help. Yes, yeah, eating out of a trash can is not ideal. Yes, and and so it was actually used in exactly the opposite of mm -hmm. what I think you might intuitively ex expect them to mean it for. So. Uh, one of the things I was surprised about that it was so prominent in the state of the city. Again, he's saying like, we can't accept the situation as it is. Here's the things we're doing. And this was probably the one he spent the most time kind of explaining. Mm -hmm. And then did, did we get a sense from that reporting about how much this could impact the situation on the streets? Um, well, I think Lisa mentioned that th this conversation is not something new to San Diego County. Um, this conversation was had at a certain point and uh, county officials determined that based on the current threshold, only eight people would be eligible um, for this. Eight, eight, eight. eight total in eight the county. Total. Eight people. Eight, eight, eight people would, based on would, the meet, current threshold. would meet this the standard of, of what you would need to prove. Is, is that the county's own interpretation or is that yeah. is in cannabis challenge or is it just that the law really is that clear? this this was in discussion of like a pilot program and it was that the county staff had done some work about like okay if, if this is the standard here's how many people have been in and out of the system enough times to trigger a, a yes they came up with eight so it may not be eight but i think it gives you a a, a 
an anchor for how low the number we're talking about for the availability of this function presently is. And they're attempting to increase it, yes. But my read from the from Lisa's reporting is it, we're not talking about a broadly powerful measure that would address the hundreds and hundreds of people who sleep on the streets of San Diego right now. It would be more than eight, but less than a thousand, you know? Um, and so I, I, I think, and, and Todd Gloria, she spoke, uh, Lisa interviewed uh, Mayor Gloria and, and he said to her, you know, this is an important tool for acute cases and there are more of them than we're able to address right now, but he's not pitching this as a way of, of, you know, Clearing the, of, yeah, all, all, clearing the streets of mm-hmm. homeless people. Mm. Well, I, uh, this is really interesting to watch. It sounds like a lot of different legislators and the mayor and the governor are interested in this. Which, I mean, it's certainly, it, it, it certainly requires a balance. I mean, to there are few things as powerful of uh, intervention into people's civil rights than to take their ability to provide for themselves and make their own basic decisions away from them. So yeah, it's the opposite of liberty. It's yeah. the opposite opposite of liberty, and and I will say that the the advocates who are pushing for this seem keenly aware of how important that balance is. That they they just come down on the side that there are a number of people for whom it is cruel to leave to their own devices based on their present level of mental health. Mm-hmm. I think will will be interesting just kind of you know to watch uh, throughout this process is people's ability to differentiate between what I mentioned probate and then this LPS mm-hmm. um, because you know there are at the same time that the state is pushing for conservatorship uh, some people are pushing for reform because of what happened to Brittany so I yeah. think it'll be interesting to see you know how that message <laughs> is formed tangled. and if it gets yeah. tangled with that because yeah. like we mentioned last week we think of conservatorship and we think of Britney Spears. Yeah, I, we don't often hear from Assemblyman Bryant Mainshine's office, but we did get an email this week from them because they're pushing a reform of the probate, the Britney Spears mm-hmm. world, and they don't want to be mixed up with that they're trying to oppose or or stand in the way of these efforts to liberalize the other type that might help with people who are struggling on the street. So it, there's just a lot of sensitivity about like no no no, we're we're still in on this or not on that or how it's all going to work out so i just think it's a fascinating push i'm one of those things that kind of slipped under my radar that could become a a bigger deal or maybe it's just another talking point there was a really interesting column in the la times just say steve lopez i think other people in, in there's a marriage race going on in 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 la and and i think his point was kind of like we're we're sick of hearing the same points about homelessness like what Stop overpromising, stop underdelivering. It's stop saying the same things. Like what are we, and it's there is it's, that stasis. Just what are we doing? I yeah, I feel that way often. Where like in the last ten years, this has gone from an issue that was present but not the dominant, not even close to the most dominant issue in public affairs, to the only thing that people really seem to talk about. Every on a- survey, every issue, it's always this is the big, and he even said, Mary Gloria said, mm-hmm. this is the thing people talk to me about the most overwhelmingly. I mean, it's unavoidable. You see it everywhere you go. And yeah, and, uh, yeah I mean, to the, the, the thrust of this column was 
you can't, we can't just keep having the same conversation and you, and I see no good reason to believe anything is changing, much less getting better. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that conservatorships are necessarily seen as like the skeleton key to clearing out the skid rows that have developed in multiple cities in this state. Uh, and in fact, it seems like Mayor Gloria is being quite careful to suggest that this is like a, a limited tool in its scope, but it's important still. Um, but nonetheless, yes, the, the conversation and the, the sense of urgency around this needs to ne- needs to overcome the stasis that we've been in for the last 10 years. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in the studio again. We're back. We've got a cool new product at Voice. We text you the news. You'll get exclusive info and updates on our biggest stories, all in quick and easy text messages. You can also ask us questions, give us story tips, and more. Sign up now at vosd.org slash text. That's vosd.org slash text. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. And Andrew Keats and Andrea Lopez Villafaña are our managing editors. And Nate John is our esteemed producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. We'll be right back.